You're listening to Napa Valley College Now on NapaBroadcasting.com. Thanks for joining us here on NapaBroadcasting.com. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Herbert Hoover once famously said that the business of America is business. Today, it might be fair to say that the business of America is politics. From the money raised and spent on campaigns to the 24-7 coverage of cable news, talk radio, and the political entertainment complex to the anger and anxiety that spread broadly across the land. Moreover, as I've discussed here before, even local politics is at best a victim of a secondary infection of polarization and partisanship. All of this makes the art and science of politics perhaps the subject of our time. Understanding politics, maybe even more than learning how to code or speaking Mandarin, is perhaps the ultimate academic challenge today. That's why it's my pleasure to welcome John Lascano here. He's the head of the political science department here at Napa Valley College, and it's my pleasure to welcome him here to NapaBroadcasting.com. John, thanks so much for coming in. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Thanks Good. for having me. Great to have you here. Uh, certainly a busy time for uh, for you and your students these days. Busy and crazy at the same time, yeah. yeah. You bet. How many years have you been teaching uh, political science, first of all? You know what, Jeff? This is my 16th year here at the college, full-time, and uh, it's been a uh, wild, Mr. Toad's wild ride. Talk a little bit about how it's changed in terms of, of really two parts. One, the knowledge level and the participation of students that, that are coming into your classes, what they know, what they care about, and also how that's been impacted by the way politics has become more and more, as I said in the introduction, a kind of spectator sport. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in terms of preparation, students coming in today uh, are different than students coming in when I first got here in 2002. And that, that trend's been sort of pretty consistent. And what do I mean by that? Well, uh, essentially, what I mean is that the quality of their preparation has gone down almost uniformly, not just in my classes, but pretty much campus-wide, and I would dare say state and nationwide, too. Uh, and it's, a, it's the basics. It's the fundamentals that they're really lacking. So abilities to write paper, uh, abilities to think clearly through problems, um, to structurally approach any kind of issue. They just are not prepared for that stuff. And when you get to higher-level subjects like economics or, or political science, that's where that stuff really shows, those deficiencies really show up. And that's what I'm dealing with. So asking students to write papers, um, that's, that's a real chore. Um, but just getting them to approach basic, uh, basic levels of knowledge, three branches of government. How long is a person elected for? What are the major issues of the day? Even that is a brand new door for them. And what do you think has changed? Why do you think student awareness, student knowledge, base knowledge of those things, why do you think that's fallen? Is it something in the K-12 system? Is it something in the culture? I mean, what does your instinct tell you and what does your experience tell you? Yeah, I, I, you know what? There's a two, that's a two-part answer, Jeff. And I think the first part is what you would suspect, which is the quality of the public education that we're providing down at the K-12 level has gone down. I think any fair-minded person uh, would not dispute that. And I'm not saying those are bad people down there. Just the incentives they face and the resources that they have mean that what they're turning out is, uh, for lack of a better phrase, a substandard product. The other part of that is, I think, something you might find interesting, which is um, the level of responsibility that we lay at the doorstep of a modern voter is far and away in excess of anything we expected of people back in the 60s, back in the 50s. The amounts of information and the amounts of political knowledge that students and adults need to know today is uh, just of a magnitude 
far in excess of anything in the past. County sheriffs, propositions, local supervisors, school boards, senators, state senators, state assembly folks, the amount of information that is required for an adult, not even to mention a student, is staggering. Of course, the corresponding part of that is that more and more information is available, that in the 50s or the 60s, you couldn't go online and see, you know, even what the sheriff's position might be on on any number of issues. Now that information is accessible in everybody's pocket. So there has been a corresponding increase in availability but maybe it's not being taken advantage of. Yeah, I think that you're you're absolutely right uh, uh, in saying that, which is there's definitely more knowledge available to the modern voter to access and then make decisions. But the addition of that knowledge means a greater consumption of all of these people's time at a time they just don't have. If we could say also that the day has expanded in the number of hours, then we'd all be in a good place. But the problem is there's a limited amount of time and an increasing amount to know. I want to come back to the K-12 part for a moment because there's a a lot of this falls under the category of basic civics and history. And what I'm hearing from you is that even that seems to be falling by the wayside. Yeah, I I think that uh, any good uh, uh, instruction involves those basics. I mean, that's a fundamental to critical thinking. And I think any history teacher, any English teacher here on campus will tell you that these students do not have those fundamentals. So then the question becomes is, why don't they have those fundamentals? I think there's a lot of pressures going on at that level that lend themselves to a miseducation or the absence of education for folks. Um, When state resources are directed from the state... It's incumbent upon local schools to push uh, push graduates through in order to receive their funding. And I think that, which began in 1974, 75, uh, is the genesis of a lot of these problems. To what extent is this more unusual given that what you're seeing in, I'm sure, many of your classes is a Mm -hmm. self-selecting population? I mean, people are taking political science classes because they want to, because they've chosen to, and yet the level of knowledge is, is that low. Yeah. You know what, you know what, Jeff? I would actually, um, I would counter that, and I would say more and more of my students are there as a result of some requirement they have Ooh. to fill. Students are more directed today. I think the cost of education and their time and their resources uh, necessitates that they want to get in and get out as quickly as possible, and that means not taking a lot of stuff that they regard as not germane to their mm-hmm. major. So virtually all of my students um, are not political science majors. Uh, you may have one or two. They all are full of political opinions. Don't get me wrong. Right. <laughs> so so that's definitely the case. But they're not majors, and they have no interest in the subject in, in an academic sense. Um, so uh, I have, I'm dealing with reluctant audiences who are also unprepared. So that's sort of a double whammy from the professor's We'll talk about that from a personal point of view, then. What's the challenge for you? One, wanting to teach them, obviously. You care mm-hmm. about the subject matter. And two, realizing that it has a broader consequence outside the classroom mm-hmm. in terms of their citizen participation. Yeah. Um, I, you know, the state operates off these uh, um, core, these course outline of records, which is the fundamental things that we should be delivering to students. And it, in my estimation, that is divorced from reality. Students need to be uh, approached in a different way. Uh, politics, the door of politics needs to be opened in a different way um, in order to engage them. 
and that might mean finding out a little bit more about your students' personal likes, dislikes. It might mean a greater connection just amongst human beings. Um, but whatever it is, the way that these kids are approaching politi- politics is not uh, conducive to the way that we traditionally deliver education. And I mm. think that's why you're seeing an explosion of the traditional model or collapse. Charter schools, private schools, at-home schooling, you now have these apprenticeship schools uh, beginning to blow up. And these are all, for, as far as I'm concerned, valid market alternatives to what has become a very antiquated uh, a vehicle for delivering education. Mm-hmm. Is there any connection that the students have to, again, the sort of entertainment part of politics, the fact that it's all around them, that it's on cable so much, that it, that it, some of it is inescapable these days. It has become so intertwined with so much in the culture that it's hard to avoid. Yeah, no. Whether it's Stephen Colbert or whatever it might be. Yeah, and I think there's a pro and a con to that. You know, when, one is which students are constantly brushing up against political commentary. Right. They're exposed to certain facts, certain knowledge that they might not get otherwise. Uh, the con, or the other side of that, is that um, the delivery of that information is not from academic sources. It's not from factual sources. It's from comedians masquerading as right. journalists. And that has its own dangers. Or movies uh, whose directors uh, also believe themselves to be astute political observers, and they're not. So uh, I think that's the other side. That's the dangerous side of that as well. You know, Is it your sense that this is a community college phenomenon? Is this a national phenomenon? Are, are, are your colleagues mm. seeing this in four-year liberal arts institutions? What is your sense of that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know that I've thought about that thoroughly enough, but I do think that that's definitely a, a, a statewide problem at a minimum. And I would wager if I would travel to other places that this is going on uh, at other locales as well, partly for the reason I just mentioned, which is that our particular model, our particular mode of delivering information is something from the industrial age. Uh, students sit in class, a professor stands up there, and they dress it up. They might have a YouTube video in the background playing or a DVD, but that's not what constitutes a different delivery vehicle. That's just the lights and bells mm-hmm. telling the old delivery vehicle. Um, so I, I think this is a, a systemic phenomenon. Um, and I think a lot of us understand some of the problems, um, but for uh, self-interested reasons, we either ignore those things or we're unable to see those things. How does social media play into it as you see it? Um, yeah, that's, I, I think that's a, a valid new vehicle, not only for delivering uh, information to students, but for, inform- for students to deliver their opinions and preferences back to the educational establishment, to teachers, conveying what it is that's most grabbing them. I think that's a good way to dialogue um, as opposed to the you know, mm-hmm. lecture method where it's a one-way, it's a monologue. <laughs> Um, but uh, I, I don't know that the impact, I see, think some of the social media impact is a little bit overblown. Um, the the, the consequence, consequences of social media, I think, have yet to really come to f- fruition or reveal themselves, if at all. Except to the extent that, that in a broader political sense, that this gets away from the student part of it for the moment, just the self-referential aspect of it, the self-selecting aspect, the siloing of information and really only seeing information from people that think like you do. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting phenomenon. So people sort of huddling together in their own bubbles, um, unable to uh, see outside of those bubbles. I don't know. I mean, 
I don't know that that is purely a phenomenon of social media or some new technology. Maybe the social media just lends itself to some sort of innate tendency for people to do that. Right. It makes it it's self-reinforcing right, in right, that sense. Right. I would agree with that. It's self-reinforcing. Um, but I also think that huddling together in these bubbles uh, might be preferable to people who don't don't get into any bubble at all and thus wind up being completely ignorant about a whole host of things. You know, I don't know. As you see this happening with young people, what does it do to your thoughts, your optimism, pessimism, your hopes for how the political process will play out in, in years to come, both nationally, locally, in, in all other ways, because those are subjects that you've thought a lot about, obviously. Yeah, I think it goes a long way, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest something here. I, I think it goes a long way towards bursting uh, a somewhat an idealistic bubble uh, blown up by baby boomer generation about uh, what constitutes ideal levels of participation, about what constitutes proper civic engagement. I think that generation had a whole host of ideas that uh, had tended to get away from reality. And what I mean by that is these students today um, are not have no aspirations to march in the streets, have no aspirations to become the fully versed citizen participant. Um, they have very localized interests, with primarily beginning with themselves. I don't want to characterize them as a narcissistic generation, but I think that that feeds into that. I also think that um, a lot of what's positive from this generation will be a focus on what's going on locally. I think our attention has been at the national level for far too long. I think that our Peter Pan-like faith in what the the government at that level can do in terms of solving social problems is also overblown. And I think that a lot of the younger generation is turning off of that and beginning to look in their own backyard in terms of understanding and engaging with politics. Right. I mean, this could be happening actually in two ways. I mean, I think that, that philosophically it, it could be true in the sense that you're talking about in terms of what's going on with students and what's going on with millennials essentially today. I think that that's true. I think also what we're seeing going on nationally now, while it may be fascinating at the moment, there is going to be a burnout effect to all of this. And that will further turn off everybody, millennials most of all, to what's going on nationally. And to the extent that there's anything left, it will focus locally. Yeah, I, I definitely think you're right. And if only self-interest is left after all that sort of uh, uh, burnout occurs, I think self-interest will compel them to be at least aware of what's going on in their neighborhoods, what's going on with their local police, their local schools. Um, what's going on in terms of national health care policy, I, I, I think that that's at the bottom of the list for a lot of these folks. Um, and so I, 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 I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I'm, I'm yeah. saying I, I tend to agree with you. But, it, you know, it may be that that's where it goes and it doesn't all fall apart. It just changes. And, and, and your point, which was particularly interesting, that it's this boomer phenomenon, a group that I'm proudly part of, I suppose. Yeah, sorry, Jeff. That's, that's, yeah, that's right. you. You're in there, too. That, yeah. <laughs> that really has, has had a certain set of expectations that this is the way it's always worked. Yeah. And in fact, like everything else, it's subject to disruption. Yeah, and I think it's a natural part of a change that you see generation to generation or several generations. Um, I think that the focus on rights uh, for many in that generation kind of neglected also the counter 
countervailing uh, focus on responsibilities, which are also important. And I think that the younger generation is becoming uh, more aware of the, this need to have rights, but also responsibilities, social responsibilities. Um, and just as a uh, as an anecdote, um, you know. I, I also teach economics when the need arises, and it's it's been shocking to me for 15 years running that students haven't the foggiest idea of simple notions of supply and demand <laughs> to explain very simple things. And um, I think that as they become more aware of their financial situation, I think as they become more concerned that the dream that their parents may have had for them to reach higher levels than we did, I think as they become cognizant that that might not be possible, that they might begin to approach things uh, using economics, supply and demand, the concept of scarcity and trade-offs to understand problems, which is going to lead them in a different direction than baby boomers, who I dare say weren't so concerned with scarcity and trade-offs and uh, the finiteness of uh, resources. Right. I mean, the, the unknown in all of this is technology, productivity, and, and really how that ultimately plays out. And I think we're sort of at really at the just the beginning layers of that at this point. Yeah, I, I can't even begin to speculate. I mean, when you think about how the world's being rewired and how much information is going to be able to flow globally, um, it's I think it's very difficult to speculate on how that's going to affect. But it will affect us all. In what ways, boy, your guess is right. I mean, and, I mean, it goes to the very heart of the nature of work and yeah. automation and artificial intelligence and all of these things that we hear more and more about today yeah. that really are, are not, you know, they're there, but they're not there. Yeah. But how they play out is, is anyone's guess. Well, you know, point. it's funny you mention this because in t- today in the class we were talking about Japan and its position in terms of developing robotics and the fact that they have an extremely uh, quickly aging population and how a lot of their most advanced technologies in terms of robotics are being used in senior citizen centers to assist folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just one example of how, you know, societies develop this need and technology is stepping in to provide um, something that we didn't even envision five years ago. It also comes around to the human side. I had a conversation with one of my other hats on this morning with a guy that's a data analyst at Apple who basically talks about how we all need to use algorithmic thinking to make decisions, essentially. Mm-hmm. And that if you start using that kind of thinking, that kind of approach to making decisions, whether it's you know how you buy groceries or fold your socks or whatever, yeah. that it can all become more efficient. Yeah. So it's now, our, our programming of machines is now teaching is now coming full circle to teach us how to deal with everything else. Right, right. So the big data, the big data kind of approach, you know, which to me brings me back to the economics question because, you know, the, the algorithmic approach is just sort of a, a, a computerized formulation of what markets do. You're assessing the preferences and needs of millions and millions of people, or which is data right. points at a time, you know, and in the market, we would come to a price to understand sort of the valuations of millions of people. That's what algorithmic thinking is doing just in a very systematic way. So as a market friendly person, I think that algorithmic thinking and big data is, uh, is, is going gonna, is gonna to swamp a lot of things in positive ways. It's interesting that with all of this hanging out there, that, and, and the technology that goes with it, all the things that we're talking about, that there isn't more engagement on the part of of millennials, on the part of young people, to Mm -hmm. think about ways in which all this kind of relates to each other Mm -hmm. and how it may affect 
politics or economics or, or their lives in, in the years ahead. But it's just too dis- too disconnected at the moment. Yeah, you know, I wonder about that too, Jeff. Is it disconnected, or are they uh, have they been educated in a way that doesn't allow them to easily see those connections? Um, and thinking about my own education and where I'm at now, um, I I. I'm leaning that way, which is um, for many students, the the curtains are just not pulled back for them to see, in, whether it's in K through 12 or in college. Yeah. Well, which is why, I mean, you were talking about charter schools before and some of these other approaches to education, that, that some of the interesting stuff, and albeit it's not all perfect and doesn't all work and some of it goes too far and some of it not far enough, in terms of a more integrated approach, a project-based approach, a more integrated approach to education where all these subjects kind of touch each other. Yeah. Um, now, what, what, are you saying? Are you suggesting that as a model, or what, that, what? that that really is the model? I think of of the future, and that anything short of that, this sort of siloed way we we've yeah. taught for all these years, is just not going to fly in this. Well, what do you think? About, age. What do you think about this, Jeff? Instead of sort of an integrative approach, uh, could the integrative approach be one of several models that families and parents could choose from? Um, in the same way that you, when you go to Rayleigh's, you buy your well, you and I probably buy the healthy cereal, and <laughs> the kids buy Cocoa Puffs and Lucky Charms. But the point being is that uh, there's a variety of different interests. There's millions of different interests out there, and so I don't know that there's going to be one particular model, um, since many many people have different tastes, different needs. I think that there will be charters, there will be private, there will be homeschooled, there will be schools that focus on arts and performance or engineering and the integrative model, if you know, whatever that might mean, um, meaning uh, people will be able to pursue happiness uh, as they see fit and with the range of different options available to make that possible. Well, at the moment, the choices are pretty limited. <laughs> yeah. That, well, see, that's the thing. The, the choice is very limited. And when you think about what we've been offering, we've been offering a white box that says cereal on it uh, for, for years and years. And I wonder if that hasn't been a huge But disservice. I wonder where in that equation yeah. fits this idea, coming back around to kind of where we started in terms of some basics, civics, history, you know, some basic civics, basic history, basic citizen participation. That, that even within all of those models, there has to be, it seems to me, some acceptance of certain basics that, that have to be a part of that. It doesn't mean they have to be taught a certain way. It doesn't mean they all have to be spelled out in the same curriculum in the same method and taught, but that there needs to be a set of things that we all kind of stipulate to. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, if you start with the founders, their idea was that you should attach self-interest to one's wanting to learn about those things. And of course, that meant property ownership. You would want to be aware of certain historical facts, certain economic facts, but uh, we were long past that point. So what we do is simply tell students, you need to take a history, you need to take a you know, a political science. And is that enough for a group that's not interested or who has other, other pressing concerns? You know, I don't know. But I think you're right. But the question is, is how are we going to do that? What, what's, what's the method by which? Right. I mean, there's a certain element of behavioral economics that will happen. You were talking about it before as they get older and as yeah. they, they take on responsibilities. There's a way to begin to teach those ideas of behavioral economics, this yeah. idea of nudge and some of the things that go, 
a lot earlier in, yeah. in sort of very fundamental ways. Right, right. So, so uh, you, you, maybe you're thinking about some some sort of experiential or project based thing, absolutely, where they can work themselves in. So, I, I think those are fine ideas. But you know, ironically, what when you suggest that this this looks strikingly like the apprenticeship model that used to occur <laughs> in virtually every country in the world up until about a hundred years ago. If you want to be a doctor, you know what you do. You go down to the local hospital and you begin interning with the doctor. Even today's med student, you're not done. You need to spend several more years in an actual hospital. If you want to be a nurse, if you want to be a teacher, you shadow these people, and that's the way to learn. So I think this project model that you're talking about, it's a resurrection of what modern public education killed off about 100 years ago. Right. Well, maybe some of that needs to be brought back. You know, it's Absolutely. the old, everything old is new again. I mean, it, certainly it's a new way. And look, and there are a lot of young people that don't know what, what their passion is. They have no idea. Yeah. And there, there's got to be a way to accommodate for that, too. Right, right. Yeah, um, I, I think that there's, again, there's can, there can be schools for every type. So there can be a school for a student who's just exploring and a school who's for students who already know, I want to be an engineer and I don't want to have to take uh, political science or ethnic studies or sociology. That's not in my wheelhouse. I know where I want to be. There's something for everybody. The fascinating part of all of this, and it sort of brings it back to, to political science 101, is the idea that... All of this stuff, which is all out there and all changing and all being disrupted and all these things we've been talking about, are not really being talked about among the political class. I mean, there are places they're being talked about, but yeah. in Washington, not so much. Think tanks, maybe a few other places for sure. But among electeds, it's not front and center. It's just, just keeping the trains running at best. Yeah, well, I think there's a self-serving reason why they wouldn't be discussing all that stuff since their their own livelihoods are t caught up with preserving that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think there's a general absence, and I think it's a conspicuous absence of conversation regarding precisely what you're talking about, which is there are some mega trends happening right now. Right. Um, it's, 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 you know, when we get to the issues of Trump and Clinton and all of this, this, this is the, the, the tip of a very important shift, I think, going on or realignment. Something different is happening with politics. And to be honest, I think that it's a movement away from what has been a, a dominant statist model of understanding politics for at least 100, 150 years. And nobody who's alive today knows what it's like to not follow that model. So I think it's a big uncharted area that not a lot of people are brave enough to begin seriously discussing. You know, there's always talk about disruption in every single business. I mean, you pick up the Wall Street Journal every day, and there's, there's some new industry, new business that's facing the realities of disruption. I think NPR has been doing a story recently about how technology and disruption is finally impacting farming, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, and just every area. Nobody wants to talk about how Washington literally is being disrupted, even though they don't quite know it yet. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great point. That's a great observation, yeah. Um, I, I think that it goes back to what we were just talking about, which is this w either unwillingness or an inability to uh, acknowledge what seems to be happening everywhere else in the world um, and 
the sooner we get on that. I think a lot of people don't know how to articulate that, though. Um, even politicians themselves, they, they sense something's happening, how to articulate it. Right. Even academics, and I dare say a lot of academics, I think, are so wedded to their own theories and models that they have a tough time stepping out of the box to try to approach this subject without being accused of this, that, or the other. Right. I mean, if you talk to politicians about it, um, and I, I have, and I've, I've tried to at various points, Generally, they, although they don't quite articulate it this way, what they're saying is, that's not my problem today. And even if I'm in office for 20 years, it probably won't be my problem. So I really can't worry about that. Yeah. You know, you know, Jeff, I think this is coming a lot sooner than those folks realize. I agree completely. I, I think that the rate of transformation is accelerating. And I think for a lot of politicians who in the old days might have said, listen, that's not going to be my problem. I'm going to be out of office by the time these trends hit me. I think for a lot of sitting incumbents today, it's going to be at their doorstep a lot quicker than they expect. I mean, there was a conversation that somebody had with the new uh, Treasury Secretary talking about artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and self-driving cars and, you know, a million and a half, two million truck drivers being taken out of jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And his response, you know, that's way down the road. That's 20, 30 years away. How about five? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And what's shocking and sort of concerning is that those discussions need to begin happening now in order to accommodate and negotiate those changes that we can see them. We know they're coming. They're coming. Yeah. And uh, I think they're coming a lot quicker. And so those conversations need to begin now. See, it should make your classes fun if you could just get the students more engaged. You all know, this. you know what? Th- th- why don't you come in, Jeff, and we can have this conversation, <laughs> and maybe that will spark a uh, fire there in the class. That, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, John Lascano, I thank you so much for coming Absolutely. in here and uh, chatting with us a little bit. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me, Jeff. Thanks a lot. Thank you. NapaBroadcasting.com, the online radio home of Napa Valley College.